I'm matchmaker Maria, the founder of Agape Match. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions and interview experts to give you the tools to find or keep the love of your life. This is Ask a Matchmaker. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria, and today's episode is a special episode because I brought on someone who inspires me, and she's only hearing this right now while I say it to you on camera. Um, I have here Lolita Jackson, MBE. Yeah, there aren't that many Americans who have that British, it's a British title, right? Yes. At the end, but Lolita is that special. I'm telling you, this is a special episode. And the reason why Lolita, to me, is special is because her story is just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to be happy and I'm going to leave. I'm going to do what I need to do to have a happy life and be cool with my choices. This is at least, this is what I've summed up for every time you've shared your story with me. So Lolita, welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I can't wait for people to know all about you. Thank you for having me. So Lolita, um, first up, you're a Jersey girl. Yes. This is why, <laughs> this is why I'm obsessed with you. Like, let's start with there. So, uh, you also grew up in the same no, you grew up in Somerset County. Somerset County, the town of Franklin Township, in Somerset in Franklin Township. Yeah. And I'm in Middlesex County from Piscataway. And uh, Piscataway, Franklin. We were rival high schools, everyone. <sighs> Thanksgiving, every Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, <laughs> Thanksgiving football, guys. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, so, uh, but I met you in New York yes. when we were both living in New York. And um, I think, you know, you have, you have a history in New York. So let's start with like, how'd you get to New York? So I was eight years old and I stood up at a Thanksgiving dinner because I'd had a dream that I'd live in New York as an adult. I said, I'm going to live in New York when I'm grown. And at the time, I'm 56. So at the time, the Bronx was burning, drop dead by Ford. All of those things were happening. So there was no chance to, to my family that I was going to do that. Like, why would you want to live in New York? I never lost that. And so when I got out of college, I lived in New Jersey for about a year after college. And I was like, nope, I got to go. And I at 23 years old, I've been here ever since. So I've been here 33 years. You went to college at Penn? Yes, I went to University of Pennsylvania, yes. And what'd you study there? Chemical engineering, believe it or not, because that was the job that paid the most money. And I was good at math and science. I'm like, I'll just do that. And then I hated it. So uh, before <laughs> I left, I started taking a lot of classes in the business school. And that's what allowed me to work um, on Wall Street in the, in the 90s. So... So you moved to New York, you're at Wall Street. Where yes. are you working at at Wall Street? So I worked for a firm called Dean Witter and their world headquarters was in Two World Trade Center, which everybody now knows as the South Tower. Um, and it merged with Morgan Stanley in 1996. So I started out uh, with Dean Witter and then it ended up being Morgan Stanley. So I worked there for 12 years. Is it, correct me if I'm wrong, is Dean Witter the same place like from the pursuit of happiness movie yes oh okay in fact some of the things they referred to there i knew some of those references so i went to see it i was like okay i know where that is i know where that building is so it was, it was kind of fun to watch that movie but that's the same firm so you stayed at you were working at dean witters for 12 years yes at, at the south tower yes well the south tower was gone the last two years i sure, worked there okay. so i left in 2003 but the I, I started my career there and i was there until the building no longer was there so walk me through that now, because sure. I think that's what has always kind of stopped me dead, you know, stopped me dead in my tracks. And I hate to use that pun here because 
But it was like, you're the first time I met, you're telling me a little bit more about that. I'm like, wait, what? And where, what floor are we talking about here? So I was there in 93 and I was there in 2001. So 93, it happened at lunchtime. And uh, we have a younger audience, so they might not know that 93 something happened. So in 1993, (laughs) a bomb was placed in a van and it was put in the parking garage. There was a gigantic parking garage, multi-story between the two World Trade Center towers. The bomb went off and the building obviously did not, neither the one of the buildings fell, but they were damaged enough that the smoke went straight up the elevator shafts. Wow. So the buildings were filled with smoke not that long after that bomb went off. And so I was sitting at my desk eating lunch. It was winter time. And for those of you who don't know, the World Trade Center complex was the biggest mall in New York City. There were over 200 stores, places to eat. All the transportation hubs were underneath except for two train lines. You never had to leave if it was a bad day outside. So because it was snowing that day, um, I just got my lunch and went right up to my desk and the buildings were filled with people shopping and getting their lunch. And and it was actually a kindergarten class in the observation deck. So there were these five-year-olds on the top deck of the um, Two World Trade, which is the building I was in. So the buildings were filled with about 50,000 people. And uh, the bomb went off. And there were no announcements. So whatever had happened, if there was an announcement that could have been made, that system was down. Uh-huh. And so we didn't actually know what happened because this is before the internet. 1993, right. there's no internet, there's no Twitter. So we there's literally- no cell did, phones. There's no cell phones. So yeah. we literally didn't know what was happening. And um, we the smoke came up to our floor and we're like, well, we got to start leaving. But there was a little bit chaotic to leave then. And also uh, the stairs were very narrow in the World Trade Center. You could only have two people side by side on a stairwell. They were very narrow and there were no lights on because whatever that ancillary system was, if they had one, it wasn't working. So the stairwells were pitch black. What? So there were 25,000 people. No cell phone flashlights. Right, nothing. So (laughs) you had a lighter, maybe. And so it was actually much worse to go down the stairs in 1993, which is counterintuitive. But if you think about it, the smoke was coming up in the stairwells. You could not see anything. And if you were at a higher floor, it took you longer to go down because people were coming in the lower floors and jamming up the, in the stairwells. And at one point, the firefighters started coming up the stairs. So then you had to go single file. Wow. Um, and there were only six stairwells in the two buildings. So there were three in each building. So think about 25,000 people going down three stairwells, two at a time. What are you, what <laughs> were the firefighters coming up for? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't really know the answer. May, I know there were some people needed to be rescued um, as far as not being able to go down the stairs like that by themselves. So for example, there was somebody on my floor who um, was in a wheelchair. And so four people carried him and two people carried his wheelchair all the way down those stairs. What floor? Uh, I was on 72 at that time. And so there were people who were pregnant. I know one person had gone into labor. So I think they may had had to deal with some medical emergency type, type of things like that. Oh my God. Yeah, it was, it was a lot going on. And then the problem is, as what I said- What about the kindergartners? Um, they got out. I think some people also got hel- helicoptered off the roof. So if you ever heard that on 9-11, people tried to go out the roof because those doors were open in 1993. And so I think that there were at least five- to 10 people got helicoptered off of the roof rather than going all the way down the stairs. But most of that class went all the way down the stairs. I, I was really young when this happened. And can you believe it's been 30 years since that happened? Yep. Um, but I remember where people like some people were stuck in the elevator. Yes. In fact, um, 
I was just a speaker at the 9-11 um, big gala that they have every year is myself and a person who was stuck in the elevator. Wow. So his name is Pete. I forgot his last name. Riccardi, I think it is. But the two of us were the main speakers for the whole gala. And he talked about them being stuck in the elevator and how they got out and how long they were there. And yeah, there was, he said there were four of them together in the elevator. Wow. Okay. Could you imagine if you had to pee? No. <laughs> no, no. What's funny, there's a couple of vestiges from me having to do this twice. I always go to the bathroom before I have to go in the elevator. Always. Wow. Um, and I never want to live on a high floor. What's high floor in your opinion? Anything above nine, because uh, after nine, the the ladders from a fire truck can't get to you. Do you hear what you just did? Just lower the property value across my I'm sorry, everybody, <laughs> but it's just me. Like, I've gone down, you know, dozens of flights of stairs twice. So I'm like, I don't want to do that anymore. So how um, <laughs> how quickly did you go back to the office after that? It took a month. In fact, it was a month to the day. It was, we always say it was the best party the firm ever had because uh, all the senior people from the firm combined with like the secretaries, and everybody in between, we had, you know, caviar, lobster, you know, they were just so happy that we were able to get back in. So it was literally March 26th and it happened on February 26th. But what happened was Morgan Stanley had its own evacuation plan after that and how we were going to be set up um, if an emergency happened again. So there's a famous gentleman named Rick Rascorla. There's been a documentary made about him yeah. and a book. Um, he was the head of security for our firm. He said, okay, I think the buildings might get hit by planes. He actually was on record saying that. So he, he, this is the gentleman that passed away. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was standing about seven people away from him. When we got hit by the plane. I'll oh my talk God. about that in a second. So um, I didn't know him before that, but I met him that day. Yeah. It's um, an incredible documentary. Why don't you repeat his name one more time? Rick Riscorla. Yeah. That's it's a, it's incredible. I've seen it. It's, yeah. yeah. So uh, some of the people in that documentary are people I was actually escaping with. Mm. Uh, so what happened that day is um, we were on a different floor, 70th floor and my, department had a Tuesday morning, 8.30 staff meeting every Tuesday. There were some people who flew in for this meeting. So we were all in the same room, which actually was key probably to us being able to escape. Um, so we're all in the same room and I was actually gonna be next to speak because I was in charge of a pretty um, important product for the firm at the time. So I was a person in the rotation of speaking during the meeting and I was daydreaming because I am not a morning person. So I'm staring out the window at the other building and I was staring out the window, looking at the other building when it got hit by the plane. I could not see the plane because the buildings were like this and I was over here. But so the plane hit here. I didn't see the plane, but I saw the immediate aftermath of the flames shooting out and the papers fluttering down. So I actually was looking at it the moment it got hit. And so my eyes obviously got really wide. Everybody turns around like, OK, let's go, because we have been trained to leave in a certain way and do certain things. Check the we had interior office, check all the interior offices, check the bathrooms, grab cups of ice and water. Um, if you could, if you were walking past your office, grab your wallet because we were out of the building last time for a month and the contractors actually took a lot of the things that people had left behind. So, you know, get what you can. And thankfully I was able to get my wallet, my purse, uh, in my bag and then start just going to the stairs. And what happened at that moment is that 72nd floor now, 70th floor, 70th so this floor. is, um, you know, 2001, but we're on a different floor. So we're going down the stairs and when we got to about the 59th floor, um, they told us to go in, uh, to in, back in from the stairwells and take elevators to the 44th floor, which was a sky lobby. The buildings had two sky lobbies where you switch elevators to go, you know, further up. And they said, we want everybody to gather in one place. We can tell them what's happening. So right when, um, we were about to go, um, out of the stairwell, the person I was going with my, uh, office mate from next door to me, he said, I'm going to go call my wife. I'm going to go to an empty office and find some place to call her. And I'm like, 
I'm not dating anybody. I got nobody to call. So I'm like, I'll see you later. So I left him, took the elevator down to 44 and Rick Rescorla was maybe 10, 15 feet from me. And he had a bullhorn and there were open elevators, very large ones that would have taken you all the way down. He said, don't go on those elevators yet. I need to tell you what to do. And about two, like maybe a minute or two after that happened, um, and people were kind of a, not jovial mood, but we didn't know the other building got hit by a plane. So we're like, okay, we're fine. Um, people were saying hello to one another because they had not seen each other most of, most of the summer. It was the first full week of work after Labor Day, et cetera. So people were like, hey, how you doing? How's your summer been? And then we got hit by the plane. The floor that I was on had no windows. So we couldn't see anything. And that probably is a blessing. So we got hit and the whole building just moved like this. And of course, obviously people were shocked and then it came back. Wait. <laughs> you're, you don't, there's no windows when this happens. Yeah. So we can't see anything. Does it feel like you're falling? Yes. So the building felt like it was going to fall over because the, the impact of the, now that I know what happened, the impact of the plane obviously was such force that it, you know, when the plane stops and the building has to keep that, that force going. So it kept the motion going. Um, for, you know, the building is built to sway. The buildings were built to sway anyway in the wind. So they were already flexible. Um, so we were on a higher floor, not a high floor, but a higher floor, like mid, maybe one third of the way up. So it was enough that it was, was we felt it bend like this and then it just snapped back. And, but at the moment that it got hit, I thought that I was going to die. I was like, oh, the building's going to fall. We're going to die. We didn't know we got hit by a plane. We knew something happened. Are there lights in the stairwell now? Yes. Yes, I should have um, said that. So in the interim years, they painted reflective paint. So even if the lights were out, you'd be able to see. So they played the reflective paint in the middle of every stairwell. Um, and they also had different generators for um, the floor, for the, sorry, for the stairwells. So the lights would never really go out on the stairwells. This happened, you know, really early in the morning. You don't have the 50,000 people right. in the building. So was the stairwell a little emptier compared to what you remember from 1993? Yeah. So a couple of things about that. A lot of people weren't leaving. So they were told to stay. If they said on the, um, I should have uh, clarified this, on the announcer, they said, if you work for Morgan Stanley, meet me on 44, come to 44. So there were a lot of people who did not leave when this happened. They were told by the Port Authority to stay. So uh, that unfortunately, some people had to sort of run for their lives at the end because they had been told to stay. But my company, everybody already started leaving. So by the time we got hit, we were at a much lower floor. I know people who died at their desks or at the higher floors because they actually waited and decided not to leave when we were told to leave. So I know somebody who died at his desk at the 73rd floor, and he was one of the few people they found his body somehow. Um, so if you were at those higher floors, it was much more likely. In fact, my friend um, who decided not to take the elevator with me, he was trying to get on an elevator, you know, three, five minutes after me. And he was in an elevator by himself when it, we got hit by the plane and the cable snapped. And that's actually how he died. So if had I gone with him to make a phone call, I would have been in that elevator. Just pure hopping stats if you lived or died. Like one woman got all the way out, went back to get her purse. Like just, just, and I always tell people, you don't know, you could just be going for a cup of coffee and it could change your life. Do you, so to walk me, so what floor are you on when the, when the plane hits your building? 44. So there were two sky lobbies, 44 and 78. The 78th one, the plane went through it. So only six people lived who were on that floor because the plane went 
this way when it came in. It was six could, people lived on the floor that a plane hit. Apparently, yes. So uh, I don't know how, but um, sixty-eight to seventy—sorry, six seventy-eight to eighty-two—is the floors that the plane went through because it yeah. went in sideways like this. So that sky lobby was basically destroyed. Um, and then mine was the one below it, 44. Do you, um, what, so when you're in that area now, no windows, there's some lights though, the building goes like this. I mean, are you guys holding each, like, I'm sure it was like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm no physicist, but like what, 20 seconds? Like, yeah, that's right. So, um, do you, that's a traumatic, I mean, yeah, I mean, some people were freaking out. Some people screamed, but, you know, it knocked people off their shoes. But I was like, so I'm an engineer by training, as I said. And I was like, I just got to get out. Like, that's what I'm asking now. Like, that's the question. So it's like, that happens. And it's like, does your brain turn on and be like, oh, I got to get out of here. That's what happened to me. So yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty calm person in adversity when it's something like crazy like that happens. Like, okay, it, either I'm going to get out or I'm not. Because once the building did that and I'm like, I'm going to die. Also, I'm a very religious person. Like if I'm, if I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I think I'm going to be all right, but I'm going to try my best to get out. So when the building went up like this, there was somebody who I knew who was in front of me. He's like, what just happened? I was like, I don't know, but we need to leave. We need to get out right now. You said it like this calmly. I did. I didn't cry. Like I, I, something, I just, I'm able to sort of pivot like that in, in stressful situations. Everybody handles stress differently. Right. So I'm like, I'm not screaming because that's not going to help me get out of here. So I took one class called fluids and how fast fluids can go through a pipe. I was like, okay, I only took that class for this one day. Everyone was trying to go through the same set of stairs because they wanted to get away from whatever had happened where we got, you know, when the plane hit over here, like I'm going to go down this one set of stairs. There were three of them. And I said, well, why am I going there? I need to go over here. Cause I remembered in 1993, I didn't have that. You know, it took a long time to get out. I'm like, I don't have two hours to get out of here. And whatever happened, I knew I need to get out more quickly than I did in 93. Which tower fell first? Mine. So we got hit second, but fell first. We had less time to get out. So we got hit at 9.03 and it fell at 9.59. So we had less than an hour to get out. The other building got hit at 8.46, but didn't fall until much later. Okay. Like 12 something. So you're on the 44th floor. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to these other stairs and nobody's in. I was the first person in the stairs. How far? So like in that floor, like were you in the stairwell when it hit? No, I was on the. Oh, you're on that floor. Yeah, I was on the 44th floor, but the, each floor was an acre of the World Trade Center. Damn. And then, so then you, so okay, so on the floor, so you decide I'm going to go down these stairs. Yeah. So I, I ran to the other end, and I said these are clear, and then a bunch of people started following me. But I was because they, the stairs are not contiguous in those buildings. That's why you have the, the non-contiguous elevators and stairs. So right. everybody's going on these other stairs to get to 44. But anybody who'd been in these stairs already got all the way down. Is my point. Okay. Yeah. And so, cause we were all standing on 44. Yeah. So when, by the time I opened the door, there was nobody in them. I said, oh, they're clear. So we just went straight down and I was got down 44 flights of stairs in 10 minutes. And I know I could never have done that now because I have had knee surgery and all sorts of things. So I thank the Lord that that happened. The to adrenaline me. alone. I mean, yeah. What, even if you had knee surgery, I don't know. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> think I was running down the stairs with a like 44 flights in 10 minutes. You were running down the stairs. Let's be clear. <laughs> cause literally I remember what, what, what my shoes watch. are you wearing? Were you wearing shoes? I never, well, that's another thing. I never wear heels to work unless I have flats in my bag. So at that time I was wearing flat shoes and pants. And so I was able to kind of get down. So I never wear like the clinky clinky heels unless I have some, unless I'm literally in a cab and coming back, but I never do that because there's just certain life things that I do now because I went through this. You, 
flew down the stairs. Yeah. You get to the lobby. Now you see what's I I don't know even know if you could see what's happening. Yeah, I'll tell you what I saw, which is very okay. interesting. So um you I was on the floor when I got uh, down the stairs where you could see um the plaza. There was a plaza, a gigantic plaza that used to have free concerts and that people right. gathered. All I saw was the chairs for the free concerts were still standing. My eyes didn't go to anything else. By then, people had been jumping, the playing parts, all that. For some reason, my eyes didn't see any of that. I only saw the chairs. Like, oh, that's weird. The chairs are still standing. I remember thinking that. And then they led you underneath the buildings where the the mall was. So there was a gauntlet of police officers and fire people, and they all perished because they were making safe uh, passage for us to go because you had to walk underneath this gigantic mall underground to the northern northeast end of the building so i was at the southwest end of the building so you walk underground for a, i forgot how long it took to get to the other end and there was a borders bookstore there at the time and so you turn around and they're like don't turn around don't look up don't use your cell phone just keep walking you got to keep walking because they knew people would freak out so i remember looking at my watch it was 9 26 and so um i go to fulton and nassau let's say I turn around and I see the towering furrow. I had not seen the flames. I had not seen anything. I didn't know what happened. What street were you on again? I was on Fulton and Nassau. So you're only like a couple blocks away. Right. So I turn around looking up and I'm thinking it's going to take us a long time to get back to work because I'm thinking oh. we're going to get back to work one day. I'm like, wow, this is a mess. And I didn't know what happened because, you know, I just didn't know. Like Twitter, You thought it was bombs. Well, yeah, I thought, or like, I, I didn't know. I just didn't know because- we hadn't gotten any announcements of anything. So everybody around me knew what happened, but I didn't know what happened. So thankfully I call him my guardian angel. Um, a friend of mine saw me in the middle of the street. He was on his way to the tower, but never made it in because it would happen before nine o'clock in the morning. He says, do you know what happened? I said, no. So he told me, he said, you should go home now. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the subway's still running, but they're going to stop it soon. You need to get on right now because you live in Manhattan. I said, okay. So, you know, I was on Fulton and Nassau. So I walked to the two train entrance. On Fulton Street, I go down um, and the train slowly pulls in about a minute after I get there. We're pretty sure that's the last train that ran out of that station that day because it was 10 minutes to 10. And they probably shut it down five minutes to 10. And then the first building fell at one minute to 10. So the train slowly makes its way up to 96th and Broadway. And I get How out. How packed is it? Nobody's on the train because everybody's standing on the street staring. But he oh, said, yeah. you need to get on the train. So the train was actually empty, which is crazy, right? Everybody just started walking, but I'm like, I guess they didn't realize the trains were still running at that time. I mean, I don't think anyone also thought that, that they would fall. They would fall. Right. <laughs> so I get to 96th and Broadway and somebody, I get out of the train station and somebody says, oh, the other one just fell. I said, other what? They'd both fallen while I was on the subway. Because the train took where so long you, to get where up. Where did you live? I'm sorry. I still live in the same building, not the same apartment, same building. Ninety. I live in 95th and 3rd. Okay. So I just was going to take the Crosstown bus after I get off the subway. So I'm like, oh, I got to get home because people think I'm dead if the buildings fell. So I get home. I don't turn on the news. Everybody. And so. Um, you didn't turn on the news or you finally. I didn't, no, on. I didn't turn it on right away because I was just, I was like, people probably freaked out. So I'm like, I need to try to call some people. And, you know, I dial up internet. Like this is 2001. This is not now. Right. So. Exactly. So the the motives and stuff. And so also. AOL guy. Yeah. Right. And so this, also the cell phone service was really bad in Manhattan because of everything that happened. Yeah. So only every third or fourth call was getting through. So I had people, I had somebody on their honeymoon. Other people were like on like vacations in Europe and they had been trying to call me all day and couldn't get through because the phone lines are crazy. So I, so it's interesting when something like this happens to you and the person actually reaches you when they thought you were dead. That's the, that's really how they feel about you. If that makes sense. So there's some people who 
I didn't like her, but I didn't want her to die. Hey, Lolita, I just want to make sure you're all right. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know what's crazy? It wouldn't even cross <laughs> my mind to like, if this happened to my best friend that day, uh, it wouldn't cross my mind to call them because I'm like, I'm assuming they're running away. Right, right, right. Uh, forget the dead part. Just for a second. I'm just like, she must be running. I'm not going to bother her with like, especially back then, it was like the flip phone. The- yeah, it was like a whole, if you would text, like, it was an instrument. Do, do, yeah, do, yeah. Do, do, just to get the letter yeah, R. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's just like I, the idea of calling someone in this emergency, unless it's my husband or my parents, yeah, like, no. I just, it wouldn't cross because I'm like, they're busy. Yeah. You know, like I, I'll call, I'll call them tomorrow. You know, their emotional bandwidth is spent. I'm not going to waste their time. But what was crazy was there people. Well, you had your haters calling you. I had my haters calling me. <laughs> I also had people who went to the site. What? Look, yeah. So two people like, I'm like, what were you? There were thousands of people in the street. You were looking for me. That's crazy. I had another person walk seven miles to my house. I mean, just unbelievable acts of just, I, I had four male friends who are like kind of big brawny guys they got finally get me on the phone like six hours later. They're bawling, like bawling, boo-hoo, sobbing. I hadn't turned on TV yet. So I'm like, why is everybody acting so crazy? I turn on the TV and I almost throw up. I'm like, because if you look at where the second plane hit, my floor was only three or four floors below that. And that's the side of the building I worked on. And they hadn't determined which floors it had hit yet. But everybody's like, she's dead. Because I know she was at work. That looks like where she was. She's dead. So anybody who knew me saw on TV live time, because the second one hit when everybody was watching TV, she's dead. So they're yeah. like, they, they thought to get my roommate on the phone. They're like, oh, it's you? So I think there's just a shock that I answered it because I'm like an idiot. I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. You know, they're I'm grieving not like, you. <laughs> yeah, but, so that grieved me. And I'm not understanding why there's like, so like, so it was just really an emotional time because A, you realize that, you know, I made it out. And then it took a couple of days to realize that my friend actually perished because he was considered one of the missing people. And so I was interviewed by MSNBC. Um, it was Brian Williams, actually, um, the day after or Lester Holt, one of the two. So it was the day after on the Tuesday. And then they did a Dateline NBC on the Wednesday um, of people who were missing. And he was one of the people that they profiled. People called in. The producer of my segment was the same as his and realized that we, we were talking about the same person. And then people called in and said, I know what happened to that guy. I saw him get on an elevator. So that's how we found out what happened to him, actually, unfortunately. Totally crazy story. And so I had this big- You had a roommate at this time? Yeah, back then, yeah. And what what was your roommate like? The roommate was like, oh, great. I get the apartment to myself or like- <laughs> No, no, no. What? I came home. I got home pretty quickly, as I said, because I got on the subway. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, oh, you're, you're here. Oh, I'm like, yeah, so yeah, we dealt with, with that. Um, yeah, it was a pretty intense situation because, you know, found out how uh, Thomas died, unfortunately. I had big survivor gifts killed because I was the last person who knew him, who was with him before he died. Um, and then our firm only lost 13 people, but one of the 13, and we had 1,500 people there. We were the largest tenant. You were 1,500 people and they only lost 13. Yep, because we started leaving. If the building had been full, we would have had 2,500 people. So uh, a lot of people don't realize we were a gigantic footprint, like, you know, 20 stories of the of the buildings. But the key was Rick Rescorla saved our lives because he's like, you know, listen to what I tell you. Don't listen to what anybody else tells you. So he told us to leave. And that's what had us all on 44 and not the floors we would have worked on. We would have lost many, many more people. And also, once we were able to get our people, just like, we got to go. like we're, Because we knew... We weren't getting any work done. So why are you going to sit here all day? Because there were people who had not gone through 93 and sat there, sat at their desk, whatever, because Port Authority said to stay. They're like, well, I'm safer here if I stay. And I'm like, 
I'm not getting work done. The building, my building's not on fire. I'm leaving. And so I want to believe that if I were in your position, if I were a coworker of yours that did not go through 93, I would have followed someone who had gone through 93 to like wherever she's at. I'm that's who I'm following. I also know that I tend to be a rule follower and I'll be like, Oh, Port Authority told me to sit here. That's what happened. And I am, that gives me panic to think like that. Like anyway, I have a theory, by the way, anybody who's black and Brown, because just follow them. Cause well, we're so used to like authority, not being really cool with us. Right. So it's like, I know they told me to stay, but I'm getting out of here. Right. Like, so we were, I, I make the joke that if you were black or brown and could get out, you probably were not listening to whatever they told you about staying. Like you tried to leave. Um, but I know that I probably would have done that. Even if they told me to stay, I was like, I'm not staying here. Like I'm, I'm gone. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if I would have stayed, but you know, okay. The first time you saw what happened on TV now, how long after did you see it until you saw it again? Um, so I knew that they had started showing people jumping. I'm like, I'm definitely not going to watch that. So I didn't, I didn't like continually watch it because I was reliving what I saw. So my nightmares the first two weeks were, I realized the moment you of You were impact. sleeping? Huh? You were sleeping? Yeah. I mean, not well, but I was sleeping. So, uh. because the issue was, I know that I watched the moment of the many, many people dying because I was looking at the building at the moment of impact. So my dreams were filled with like, remembering seeing like when the flame shot out, like that was a very visceral thing that I kept seeing in my sleep. Um, from that high up too. Like, that was almost eye level because it hit uh, 94. And so I was a 72. So it was not that much higher than me. So I was like, almost like kind of looking right at it. I think about, um, I used to work in the empire state building for years, um, pre COVID pre office shutdowns. And I was on the 59th floor. And I think about like, when you say this about like how high you are and you're seeing this happen, I'm also thinking about the fact that like, I've been on a high floor and you get used to seeing all the other buildings look so tiny and like you see the horizon. And so, you know, usually when we look at the footage of 9-11, we're not seeing it from the boardroom perspective where there's a building, you know, hundred feet away, but you also have this foreground view a background view of small buildings horizon there was no clouds that day but right it's like the one thing i remember from high school yeah um and you know that i can't even imagine like i feel like to me that's a movie that i would have to look at a movie to understand like what you're going through because that is like i would imagine that's imprinted yep for the rest of your life there's no way to like scrub that out of your brain right um so when so then like where does the healing come from then? So I had a lot of emotional things going on there for a couple of reasons. The first is that um, everybody was focusing on the people who died, which they should have. And the first responders, which they should have. No one was talking about the survivors at all. Like thinking everybody's head, everybody died. It's like 15,000 people walked out. And just because I wasn't 15,000 people. Yeah. So there were 18,000 people there that day or like in proximity or whatever. And, you know, 15,000 people basically walked out. It's a lot of PTSD. Yes. And so people were not dealing with that at all. It's like, well, you should be lucky you're alive. I'm like, yeah, but I worked there every weekend and, you know, till nine or 10 o'clock at night. I it was like blowing up my house. And also I lost people. I lost, you know, I went to countless funerals. And so people were not really um, as sympathetic as they should have been to the people who actually were survivors. That has changed in the ensuing years. Um, so that was hard. And there's something that I call emotional rubbernecking. When something major happens, people want to be associated with it. 
Okay. So this is the one, this is why I turn off the internet on nine 11. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you feel this way. Oh yeah. Well, I don't watch the say. news because it's like I was running on the West Side Highway and I looked up and oh my goodness, I, can't, I, was, I cannot like, handle it. Nobody cares year. that you were running on the West Side Highway. Nobody, just you. You want to be able to validate yourself that you were part of it, and I, I have no tolerance for it. I cannot handle it. I cannot handle every nine yep. eleven, seeing everyone's Instagram post of like where I was on nine eleven. Right. Okay. We, if you were alive on nine eleven, we all have a story. Right. I was in high school. Nobody cares. Right. 2000 other kids were at my high school when it happened. And I live in New Jersey. You know, you know how close, you know, yep. that some of the parents yep. work there too. Yep. Like, stop. Like, yep. this is not your story. Well, that's what it is. I think that people wanted to adopt it as their story. So what happens is, this, this happens all the time. So if you're listening and you've done this to me, don't take it personally because I react this way to everybody. But what happens like, oh my goodness, you survived 9-11? I'm like, yes, I did. Now, I'm not the one that brings it up. Yeah. They bring it up and I'm like, and they're like, oh, let, let me hear a little bit of the story. I'll tell them like two seconds of it. Well, I was, I'm like, didn't nope. ask you that. Didn't ask you that. You didn't mm. have, you don't have to tell me. Didn't ask you. I don't understand why you're telling me. So that that's, I go through that all the time and it's really irritating. <laughs> so. um, someone really close to me in high school, their mother was the only survivor on their floor. Wow. And experiencing that, she happened to be on a Concord flight that morning. And when I say close, I'm talking about like my high school sweetheart and having that experience of seeing PTSD from the mom, the imprinting to the son, right. the coming, and then it's like the domino to me. Like, it was just like, I was like, Oh, like I was not there that day. And somehow it's like in my front doorstep and it felt weird. And so that's why like every time nine 11 happens, I'm like, I don't need to like, I don't even put posts up. Like, I think I put this here, like, just to like, you know, a little patriotic, I guess. Like, I just put like a nice, like, it was like a little rainbow. Mm-hmm. That rainbow. Remember there was a rainbow that yeah. day? Yeah. I was like, I'll put this photo up. This this yeah. is nice. That, that's yeah. how we'll do today. But I don't like talking about it. Like, that, right. just because it's like, it's weird. Especially yeah. if you grew up. It's always, I feel like it's always the people that are not from this mm-hmm. tri-state area that like really want to mm-hmm. talk. And I'm like. 100%. And I think that I, one of the things that I just want to say about this from my perspective is watching this happening in high school. I remember the next day I happened to be a junior in high school. A lot of the boys in my class, I could see were ramping up for military suddenly like Mm. that became. And then of course, when I was a senior, the Iraq war begins. And so seeing like a lot of my own classmates, like it's just kind of that ripple effect of all that event. Right. But let's go back to you. So you're now you've, how did you deal with that? I mean, I'm assuming you're still, are you, do you feel like you're still healing? Um, yeah. So, you know, you never know when it's going to hit you, right? It's like sort of almost like the death of a parent or a death of someone really close to you. So some 9-11s, I'm fine. Uh, some of them I'm not, but the good thing is I have a very large community of people who went through this as well, either Mm -hmm. with me or I know they went through it as well. So I got a million people to call that day or email that day and say, Hey, you know, I'm not doing that great this day. So, um, I feel very fortunate with that. There's some people who were in the towers because they were on a business meeting or they were supposed to go to a breakfast. They don't know anybody. So I feel badly for them. They don't have that sort of commonality of experience, but I literally have 200 people who went through this twice with me, not directly with me, but we were both in both of them. So I have people I can reach out to and call them. There's a couple people who, um, the, this guardian angel guy, mm-hmm. every nine 11 is like, Hey, sweetheart, just checking in, you know, like he saved my life. Cause I would have been 
two blocks in the dust cloud running from 300 mile an hour debris. So, and I know people who got hurt from that and cancers and have died. So many people have suffered. Right. So I was out, I was completely out of the area. I was gone. So he, that was because of him. How's he doing? He's fine. Um, you know, he saw the, everything happened. So, uh, you know, I worried more for him than for me in a way, but he's like, no, I'm worried about you guys. Cause I know you were in the building. So, and plus we lost time. He knew Thomas and he lost, and he knows that we lost him. So, um, do you, you still worked for Dean Witters for two more years? I did. So I got a, a gigantic promotion about three <laughs> months after. And, um, I said, well, maybe this will solve it. I'm finally a VP and finally being recognized. Um, but what pro- the problem was that the firm merger was not smooth. And so all the people who went through this were from the Dean Witter side of the firm. But then we were had we had to be uh, displaced to the Morgan Stanley offices. Um, so they none of them had gone through it. So the empathy, the level of empathy they probably would have shown now was not there then. So they didn't understand the emotional things that we were going through of not being together anymore. We were all in different areas and working in different buildings. And tell just, me more about that. Like, what do you mean? Like, um, where, where, where did, where you moved to first of all, Jersey city? Uh, Midtown, no, mid, well, Jersey city at first, but the problem was our, um, displacement area. You could see the smoke coming up from the site. And so for some people like, I'm not working here anymore. Cause I can see everything right there right. We were right across the river. So we were there for a few months and then they allowed people to work from home for a little bit. Um, and then they put us in offices in Midtown. So I ended up in Midtown the last year and a half of my career there. And so when you say like the merger didn't go so well, like, what do you mean? Like in terms of the lack of empathy? Well, we were the retail side of Morgan Stanley, which obviously it's been integrated now for, you know, years and years and years. But at the time they were an institutional firms. So they kind of, some of them looked down a bit on, you know, our side because a lot of us didn't have MBAs. A lot of us had different experiences in finance than they did. And so they're like, oh, it's just those Dean Witter rubes or whatever. So I felt that um, when we went through 9-11, they expected, for example, my boss who basically had to run from the dust cloud and throw himself on someone. But when the buildings were collapsing, they expected him to go to work the, two days later. What? Cause the two fir- days? Yeah. Cause the firm did not, they wanted to show that they, they, these people aren't going to get to us. So we need all the senior people to come back and make sure that we're able to be running and have people at their desks two days later. That would never happen now, but that's what happened then. So that's what I'm talking about. Lack of empathy. These very senior people who were completely traumatized by what happened to them. We lost somebody in our department. Like, Oh, you need to go back to work and like, make sure everything's okay. That happened. You're blowing my mind. Okay. So two, World Trade Center events are happening to you and other people. Where did the dominoes start to go now? Like, so I think for a lot of us, you know, going through it once was almost like folklore, but then you go through it the second time, you see things you never thought you'd see. I have somebody who was eye level people jumping and he was transfixed. He could see what they were wearing. He could see them holding hands as they were jumping. Like he'll never be right. That guy will never be right. I mean, he's, you know, fine on the surface, but it's like going to war. You feel like you're going in a battle and you just want to get a cup of coffee in the morning. So when a person is a soldier or they're a person who's prepared for that, it's not great, but they're prepared for it. We weren't prepared for what we went through. Well, they've also consented to being in that. Right. And so I think for a lot of us, like, and this is the joke I always say, and it's all over the internet because I've said it many times. If you can get killed more than work, you better really like your job. You said this to me when we met the first time at- um, Vivex? Yeah, at Vivex. Mm-hmm amazing i cannot believe it doesn't exist anymore but is a this like amazing uh clothing shop it's literally where masculinity yes <laughs> is born and yeah. um i that blew me away say it one more time 
if you can get killed at work, you better really love your job. So did you love your job? No, I liked it. It was giving me um, sort of access to things that I thought I couldn't have, but ultimately it wasn't the the root cause of my happiness. And so I had some therapy at the time and I was like, you know what? I just need to go. I just need to go because there's something else out there for me. And so I left um, ostensibly uh, immediately for a job that I ended up not staying in very long okay. with Lehman Brothers of oh, all places. Well. <laughs> So, you know, that was God protecting me. He's like, you don't need to work there. And then obviously I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no more. <laughs> so, um, so I was there a very short period of time. And then I just said, I'm going to quit with no job. I had enough money, thankfully, um, that I could live for a year and not look for a job. And that's what I did. So I did all my hobbies outside of work, all my passions and just said, I'm, something's going to come out of this. I'm not going to go to a headhunter. It's going to come out of this. And it did. It did. So, um, about uh, two years a year and a half, two years after I left, which was November, 2003. Um, in August of 2005, I was asked to run Manhattan operations for Bloomberg's second campaign. Okay. And so I did that. And then when he won again, um, they said, Hey, we'd love for you to work for government. I have no into his third term now. Second. Oh, his second term. Okay. Yeah. So he came in in 2001. Oh, yeah, so this is four years later. Yeah. So four years later. And so, um, they said, you should work for government. I'm like doing what I have no experience. I'm like, well, you know, most people don't know this, but Michael Bloomberg was an electrical engineering major undergrad. And oh. then he went to business school. So they said, you think like him cause you're engineering a business and we could train you in whatever the job is. We want people to think like him. I'm like, okay. So they said, what job do you want? I said, I want to be Manhattan director of community affairs. Manhattan director of community affairs. It's very specific. And that's the job they gave me. What I didn't know is that somebody had the job at the time. What is, what is the Manhattan director of community affairs? Are you the ambassador of Manhattan? No, you say, I'm mad. I want to talk to the mayor. I'm, I'm tired of these, these vendors, street vendors. I'm tired of the Chinatown buses parking outside my shop. They call me. Okay. And I figure out. If it can be solved, if so, how to solve it, what city agencies. So I got to deal with all You're like the, the engineer of the of the city in a way, but it's more of a community relations job. Sure. So I, cause I had to deal with all the, the customer, the co customer, the, the constituent complaints. So if a community board said there's this loud bar and nobody's doing anything about it, they'd call me and I'd have to figure out what city agencies could help deal with it. So I learned a lot about the city. I have, I'm going to probably write a, a, a fun essay about that at some point because all kinds of crazy. I actually have this really fun story that's not that far from here. So um, about 12 years ago, David Bowie and Sting and a couple other people had went in together and wanted to open a burlesque bar. I think it was even called burlesque, like not far from here. And, um, you know, they were waiting for the liquor license, but like, we'll just start all the construction and stuff because we know we're going to get the liquor license, right? It's David so, Bowie. Right. So they come to the community board meeting and I'm like, with my popcorn, I'm like, I know how this is going to go. So the guy comes like his shirt open to here and like black shirt, like clearly had been out the night before. Like, yeah. So we're starting everything. We already started construction and blah, blah. They're like, we don't care about David Bowie. We don't care about Sting. We're voting no. They never got the liquor license. So then burlesque plot never, never happened. So people don't understand the levers of power. And I loved watching things like this. Or I remember being at a community board meeting in Harlem and they were doing a redistricting of Harlem. They wanted to like go to rezoning, excuse me, where you could build higher and all these things. So a guy who grew up there, a little crazy, he goes, anything you build, we're going to burn all this shit down. 
I'm like, okay, we need to leave this meeting now. Like just crazy stuff. Cause people just get really, I've been to a few of those meetings. Yes. They just get really passionate, but I loved it because we grew up in Jersey where they don't really have meetings like that. No. Right. So people come well, now, out. Um, let me tell you something. With the offshore wind. Yes, they do now. Uh, moms of Liberty are starting to inf- infiltrate. Oof. And it's like, <laughs> they're, they're trying to bring book banning to Middlesex County and Somerset County. I'm like, what, what, you know, like. It's not that serious people. Yeah. But, um, but so, so yeah, so no. I love that job because it was really like going to grad school and learning what makes New York tick. I mean, it's, I've been to a few of those community board meetings yes. because do you remember, I'm sure they still exist. The link, those like electronic. Link NYC. Yes. Yeah. Link NYC. So when they came out, they had built one. I used to live in Chelsea. They had built one right outside my window. And even though it was five floors up and all the homeless guys would sit there. And, uh, I know. See, Homeless guys would that's, come. That's the stuff that I which would is have fine. to do. It's okay to use it, but they they didn't have a volume control, so they would be watching porn at three in the morning, on the loudest volume ever. So I'm hearing and the cops sex do no, and the cops don't do shit. And, the, yeah. and I could hear outside. So all I went, I was like, I'm gonna go to a community board meeting. Someone had told me, and yep. I'm just, I'm not gonna even complain. I just want to see what's going on, and then until I find the courage to complain, right? Because what am I gonna say here? You know, three eleven isn't working. Because I would call three eleven like, hey, you know. I can hear this. Like it's not, and I'm on five floors up. I can't even imagine people on the second floor. Right. So, um, so then I, ha- I went and I was like, Whoa, this is like jury duty on crack. Cause jury oh, yeah. duty is amazing in Manhattan because you get like, here's 100 random people in Manhattan. Here's right. what they look like. Right. Here's what they're like. And you're like, Oh, okay. Nice assortment of people. Yeah. And then you go to the community board and you're like, here are 75 people in your community, in your district, who uh, are very passionate yep. about their community. Yep. So I was like, okay, right at home. So I come to the next one, like six weeks later. And I was like, yeah, can you guys add like a volume control? <laughs> like maybe after 11 PM, maybe you can't go past volume three. And see, that's a great idea. That's actually a great idea. It, the, the people started screaming and yelling, not at me, just, just, you know, some people are really passionate. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, bye. And I just like, I like backward walked back and left, but you know, but it was very interesting to go to those things. Cause you learned about other things. Like if you live in Manhattan, you should definitely go to these things because you learn a lot about how people view their community and the passion. Right. And it's like, I think what you were about to say with the Bowie thing, it's like, yeah, you're not part. If you lived here. Right. And you participated and your kids went to school here. Like yep. maybe they would have more sympathy. Yep. But if you're just coming in as a tourist, right. I think I see this like, um, this is like a little bit parallel, but when people tell me like, oh, I went to Athens, it wasn't like what I was in Greece. It wasn't like I was expecting. I was expecting like domes and like, I wasn't expecting trash. And I was like, well, you're talking about architecture is a different island, but also like that aesthetic, you're talking about an, a travel aesthetic. P- people live here full time. That's right. And that's, I think I hear that it's also about Manhattan. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you can be a tourist here, but also- your aesthetic is not someone else's real life experience. Right. You know, so you start getting your job. Do you feel happy at this job? I loved it because every day was an adventure. And also I, I became very well known. There's people still asking for me now. I'm like, I've been gone for 12 years from that job, but because I was responsive. So I'm like, because if I couldn't help somebody, I would tell them I couldn't help them, but try to figure out some other solution. But I, I, I'm kind of like a sheepdog. Sheepdogs just shepherd everything, right? So for me, shepherding a problem, like, okay, how can I help fix this problem? I'm, I, that's the way my brain works. But a lot of people who have had this role, that was not how they operated. So they were not as helpful, maybe, or not as responsive. So um, I loved going to community work meetings also because I always lived in the Upper East Side and I knew 
two or three pockets of New York City, but I got to learn Washington Heights really well. I didn't know any of those neighborhoods up there yeah. or West Harlem. Um, so I really felt like I got to know the breadth of this. Washington Heights has such good food. Yeah. And it's also crazy. amazing topography, like, you yeah, know, the cloisters, everything up, it goes yeah. up and Inwood. I didn't know any of that. I so, used to park at Inwood. Yeah, so I, I would take my car from downtown and bring it to Inwood because my friend had a garage there and I still oh. paid, but I was like, there you go. I, but you learn a lot about Manhattan. Right. How big is Manhattan? It, right. And I loved it. And, you know, um, that grew pretty quickly when they're like, well, you can do more than that. So I live in the area, the last stop actually of the Second Avenue subway. And at the time that I was assigned to help with that project, um, it was getting a lot of bad press and they were blaming the mayor, but the city was not constructing the subway. It was a problem. And nobody could figure out, oh, it's the MTA and a state. Like nobody cared. They just wanted the problems to go away. Right. So they assigned me um, to help manage the process of the city agencies and the construction people and all of that. So I was kind of like the kind of project manager from the city side for that project. And I lived at the last stop. So if they were, you know, going over time or doing something on the weekend, they shouldn't, I could see it. In fact, I, I have a really funny story. I was going to get a bagel on a Saturday. My street was closed. I'm like, why is my street closed? And I noticed they were doing where I'm like, they don't have a permit for today. I called the number two guy in the MTA capital construction. I said, you guys got two hours. If this is still running, you're getting a $10,000 fine. Then I called the head uh, on the New York side of like getting them the fine. I'm like, they don't have a permit. Watch out for this. I, I'm sure my picture was up in the break room or something. Cause they would just, you got dart marks. Yeah. I mean, face. they probably soon they get away with it, but I literally live right where they were doing it. Like don't close my street. If you write an <laughs> essay that you have to have this, this yeah. Is an essay. Yeah. Um, so the reason why I thought it would be amazing to have you on your podcast. Not have we gone way afield? I'm sorry if we did. No, not at all. Oh. <laughs> but I sometimes feel like one of the things that I hear as a matchmaker and as a dating coach is that there are people that are like, I'm unhappy in this relationship or I'm unhappy at this job or I'm unhappy um, where my life is. And it's like, it's too late for me to change. I must stick this through. Or I'll meet people who are in really unhappy marriages and they'll say like, well, I'm going to stay for the kids. And I've been hearing this for so long that it's like, okay, for some people, this is Bible. What am I going to say? But then I meet you like six years ago and I was blown away by that. I was like, oh, there's a person here who has the trick to life. So I want to ask you now, now that you've, now that we have the foundation of who you are, do you feel like, is it ever too late? to make that change where you can pivot to something that can maybe make you happier, but at least have the opportunity to be happier. Yeah. I mean, going from finance to working for government was a big pivot and a big change because obviously it was a, a, a change in my profession, but it was also a change in my economic situation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just readjusted my life and I traveled more when I worked for the mayor's office and I actually did when I worked for Morgan Stanley because um, I just made it work. I, you know, started singing more. I was singing in foreign places. I'd done, done none of that when I was at Morgan Stanley. And I just recognized I That's had right. a You sing jazz, right? I do sing jazz. And so I have a band in Scotland. I just had a very successful gig. Did I tell you, I said, she's interesting. She is cool. Like she, <laughs> oh my God, your hobbies. Tell me more about this jazz singing really quick. So, um, I started singing in college, a, a group called Counterparts. It was, um, uh, sort of acapella jazz group. Actually, John Legend was the group 10 years after me. I met him when he was a freshman in college because of that. Um, so it's pretty, pretty well-known group. And, um, I just kept singing and I said, I'm not going to pick one career. I'm going to sing and I'm going to have a job. 
Yeah. And so I never picked one or the other. So I've been singing the whole time I've been out of school. I've been lead singer of a Steely Dan cover band. I've done backup singing for lots of people just, you know, in the New York scene, there's lots of people like me. So it was before COVID it was pretty easy to get a gig. Yeah. And so I've just been doing that and I've been singing in Scotland for about seven years now. So I've done the fringe twice. And then through doing the fringe twice, I have a group of musicians I can call on when I want to do gigs. So I go once or twice a year and I perform in the big jazz club called the jazz bar. Um, and also I'm able to sing in Tokyo. So I had a sold out gig in Tokyo in July, this past July, wow. a friend of mine who was an expat there. We had played together in Shanghai and wow. um, he put together a group and we had a great show at a place called Satin Doll Jazz Club. So that is amazing. So to go back to pivoting to something, so something insane happens and then something incredible happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have two co- people who called in with, I feel pretty relatable stories and I want to share them with you and talk about them. Sure. Hi, Maria. This is Harry. I've got two. So one would be a time where I dated a woman who had a lot of issues, um, just a lot of stored trauma that she hadn't dealt with. And it caused me to reevaluate a lot and put me back in therapy and got me on anxiety meds, which was like the first kind of point, like the world opened up to me and I was able to be like, oh my God, the world is so much, like there's so much possibility. I'm like not who I thought I was. And then the other, and getting on anxiety meds changed so much and has helped me become an entirely different person. And then the next would be when I decided to stop dating in February of this year and picked up a camera uh, and somehow have become a photographer in demand. And I've shot my running club. I've shot weddings on my own, proposals. And like, it's totally opened the aperture of my world, pun intended, to a whole new range of possibilities and enjoyment and fulfillment and the ability to connect with people that I never thought would happen. Um, And it's happening at the age of 32. And while I may not be in a relationship and my dating life is still kind of a bit nebulous, I mean, I'm, I'm in such a better place because of, you know, those two things. Getting on the anxiety meds helped me show up to the running club, which is where I ended up starting really shooting a lot of photography and kind of taking off from there. So they kind of go together. Thanks. What do you think about that? Um, I think the second thing I liked hearing that because for me, when I changed over from, uh, the, the government, sorry, from the, the finance job to the government, I made some big changes at that moment. So I said, okay, uh, so one thing I did not bring into this is that I started getting more involved in my church activities because I was not involved that much before I'd go to church, but I didn't do anything with the church. And then I started becoming more involved. And then I recognized that I needed to have some lines in the sand for me in whatever new job I was going to have. So the first thing is that I've observed Christian Sabbath since 2006. So I started my new job with the mayor's office in January, 2006. I'm like Sundays are for me. Yeah. I don't care if the city's burning down. I trained everybody. I'm not going to be on your call whenever it is on a Sunday, including deputy mayors. Like everybody realize she's not working on a Sunday because I need that time for me. And I didn't used to have that boundary for myself when I worked for Morgan Stanley. I'd go to church, go back to work. Like I just, there was no boundary for me because it was all about work. And I recognized that work obviously was not going to keep me alive. So I need to do things that kept me alive. So as the first thing was Christian Sabbath. Secondly, when I went on vacation, I was on vacation. I, I used to say, pretend I'm in a coma. You can't shake the bed and say, wake up, take my phone call. 
just pretend I'm dead. So you're not going to get me on vacation. I've yelled at people who email me and ask me or call me up. I'm like, the city, if I die tomorrow, the city would figure out how to solve this problem. So pretend I'm dead. I, I mean, people, I know it's morbid, but I'm like, I'm on vacation because I need to recharge. You got me all day, every day. I'm probably the most productive person you have. When I'm not here, I'm not here. Yeah. And that's it. So those are two major things I did for my life. And that's why I feel like I have a happy life because I made those boundaries for me and him, for him, his boundaries sounds like I'm going to pick up the camera. And when I have the camera, it's about me. Yeah. I love that. I, lo I love that. I love the reflection on that. Let's let, let's listen to our second call in. Hi, matchmaker Maria. This is Liz from Orlando and I'm 36 years old. And the event that changed my life as cliche as it sounds is when my mother passed away very suddenly from a pulmonary embolism when I was a week before my 27th birthday and it was devastating I was distraught I wanted to go with her <clears throat> but I remember in that moment I had just graduated college about two months prior and it was a huge kick in the ass and I remember I thought to myself oh no one's coming to save me because as a Hispanic woman you know the expectation is you stay at home till some man magically finds you and whisks you away to this beautiful life and I realized that wasn't gonna happen and I had to step up and fill in the gap that my mom left for my family um, even though I was the youngest there were still things I had to do and I got my master's degree which got me into this career I never knew I could possibly do um, and eventually I tripled my income and I was able to buy a house uh, on my own as a single millennial Hispanic woman of color and I um, it was tragic and I would give anything to have her back and it's not like I got these things because she died but I think about it all the time as I got these things in spite of her sudden death and my tragedy and my heartbreak and my depression and I was able to pull myself up, uh, partly because of how much love I had for her still in me. And I did it as a way to honor her since she wasn't able to do those things for herself coming from a third world Caribbean country. Um, so yeah, changed my life. And again, I'd love to have her back. But um, in spite of all that, I, I found a way to make it through. Do you feel that sometimes though, like in spite of all that, like, yeah, you know, it, the, getting the MBE was a moment. So when the person called me, for, for those who don't know what that means, it means member of the order of the British Empire. So, um, you know, knighthood is the fifth level and then there's five levels of it. I'm like the bottom level, <laughs> but it still is an honorific. It's a big you, deal if you're American. Yeah, no, Americans don't usually get them. It's it's British people who get them. So um, it's called the Queen's or King's Honors. And so um, it's actually something that's given to you by the king or queen of England. So it, it, for an American, it's a pretty big deal. So when the person called me, I started crying. She said, why are you crying? Did you, do you, do you have to apply it or someone? No, I, you don't. It's like the MacArthur Genius Award. You have no idea you're nominated for it until they call you. Oh my gosh. So I had no idea that I was nominated. Did I, you know what an MBE was before they called I, you? I actually did. Cause I know, oh, okay. people, I know, I know, I know uh, I'm friends with a lot of British people. So I know people who have it, Okay, but it never occurred to me. I would get it. I'm the only American at the time. Now I know other people, but at the time I was the only American I knew that had gotten something. Mm -hmm. Um, so she called me and I started crying. She's like, why are you crying? I was like, you don't understand. I grew up eating government cheese. Like what's government cheese? So, you know, <laughs> what is government cheese? When Ronald Reagan was president, if you were on welfare, they would send you a block of cheese and it was called government cheese. Cause it literally came from the government. It was like a five pound block of American cheese. 
So that's the big joke. If you grew up on welfare in the 80s, you got a block of government cheese. Once a month? It was once a month. It was right. great. Made killer grilled cheese sandwiches. So, uh, but the point is, I explained to her that even though I grew up in New Jersey, I grew up pretty poor in New Jersey. And, you know, I've skipped like two or three social classes and I'm not supposed to be where I am at all. I mean, you went to Penn for engineering. <laughs> right. You worked at Dean Witter. Right. You went through what you went through at World Trade Center right. twice. Right. But started out on lunch tickets. Yeah. And, you know, and living in housing projects, you know. And now you have an MBE. Cock, you know, <laughs> stamping out cockroaches, you know, like right. I, that's how I grew up. And so to know that I was able to skip all that and I found out in recent years, in the last 10 years, that my great, great grandmother was a slave who was bought off the auction block to be a breeder for the largest slave on her plantation. So she actually had two children that way. And then uh, someone else in the plantation hierarchy was like, don't do that to her. I want to be with her. It's my great, great grandfather, whose name is Dan McClendon, who's Scottish. So I redeemed that situation. And I'm now part of the clan McClendon. And I'm a board member of the St. Andrew Society of New York that didn't take women until 15 years ago, even though it was founded in 1754. So I redeemed something that was supposed to be a death sentence, right. you know, by her being a slave and my family not being able to get jobs. And we're originally from Florida and it's just like they all had to leave there because literally my uncles couldn't get jobs. And now I'm sitting here talking to you as a senior executive in a financial firm. And that shouldn't happen. And, and the other thing, <laughs> what you're an adjunct professor. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is, that's the craziest part to me at all. I'm still like kind of blown away by well, that. The story keeps, keeps growing. And that's, <laughs> I think that's the best part is that like, even in, I mean, you said it before, even adversity, you, you have found a way to like lead your ship. Other people follow. And, uh, it's never too late to change things. No. I mean, I always had a dream that I, I had this joke that I'm professor Jackson and um, I'd be asked every once in a while to speak at universities, whatever. And I'm like, Professor Jackson is in. That would be my like my hashtag in uh, my Facebook group. And then I actually was asked in January this year to actually do that. I don't have a graduate degree. So, and you're, and you're, at, you're teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah, so I'm teaching at an Ivy League school. I have no graduate degree. But what happened was I was guest lecturing and they said you were so compelling. And the content that you have is not even written in books. So we need you to just tell your stories about the work that you did in climate for New York, because climate is something everybody is trying to major in at Penn now, and they don't yeah. have enough people who actually have done the work. I've worked on every climate plan from 2007 to 2019 in some format, in some role, mm -hmm. and they need people to be able to tell what that was like. And so I'm just bringing in guest speakers, teaching them how to work. Now, this is the best part. I love this. So they're um, Gen Z, but they're like 25 or so. So they have a job, but they haven't really had a real kind of meaty job. So I'm teaching them how to act in the workplace. It's a professional program. So I'm making them all do 10 minute presentations. If you go over, you're getting docked because it's 10 minutes. If you're talking to a CEO or president of a firm or you know, someone very senior, they don't have a lot of time. So if you go 17 minutes long and 20 slides, they're not listening to you anymore. Yeah. You need to be able to communicate in a way that person wants to hear it, not necessarily the way you want to do it. So I'm trying to train them how to be ready so that if they go and apply for a job working for uh, an entity writing a client plan, they will get hired and they'll be good team members. So I'm trying to teach them how to be parts of teams. What do you hope people take away from this? From this session? Yeah. That, um, you do not have to depend on other people for your own happiness. There are people in your life who actually don't want to see you do very well. I know it's hard to believe, but that's true. So you have to listen to your own heart and the people you actually trust and go with the things that make you 
the person that you should put, you should be, and you're destined to be. I love that. Melita, thank you so much for coming to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. It's like truly an honor and I'm so happy you're here. It's great. Big up for Wawa. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Before we end this episode, all right, you should know that me and Melita have had a very public fight on Facebook. Public fight on Facebook. She's a Wawa girl. I'm a quick check girl. Italian shorty in the house. So if you're watching this on YouTube and you're from New Jersey and more specifically Central Jersey, I need you to comment if you are a quick check person or a Wawa person. I understand the appeal of Wawa. It's very beautiful inside. Quick check has better subs. Whoa. I you went there? said what oh, I said. What? What? Mm. So I got to say, mm. <laughs> I'm going to get Jersey right now. <laughs> and I don't think people know how Jersey I can get. Yo, Jersey's like a whole different thing. <laughs> Central Jersey's a whole different thing. Because I don't, I don't mess with people with 609 calling it a hoagie. <sighs> anyway. It's a sub. If you are listening to this on the podcast, tell your friends, send them this episode. If you enjoy this episode, shoot that link to all of your friends. And if you're watching this on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, help me with the YouTube algorithm gods so more people can watch Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again for watching. And of course, be lovable, but more importantly, be likable. See you next week. <laughs>